Good morning, everyone. Lord willing, this morning we will finish chapter 7 of John. Be turning there, please. And uh, we'll begin with verse 37. Remember, chapter 7 sort of serves as a gateway uh, to the narrative leading up to Passover and the crucifixion, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And a lot is packed into these six months. And we get a taste of it from chapter 7. As we've already uh, noted, Jesus has gone up uh, with some of his brethren, although not with them. They went up to at the beginning of the Feast of Tabernacles, and Jesus went up about halfway through and has dialogue with uh, the crowds and with uh, the leaders. And there is a lot of discussion, a lot of controversy, a lot of going back and forth going on. So we will pick up at uh, verse 37 and hopefully we will uh, end the chapter. At any rate, this will be the the last time that we will uh, spend on chapter 7. But we'll begin with uh, verses 37 through 39. On the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So we'll look at this section of scripture first. First of all, notice that uh, uh, this feast, this day, being the eighth and last day of the feast, is called uh, that great day of the feast. And uh, actually, from the research that I've done on this, it seems that uh, uh, this last day was great, and it was significant because there was some uh, symbolism involved. I'm going to read uh, a paragraph that Perry Cotham wrote in his commentary concerning this uh, last and great day of the feast. A high point in the festival was the pouring out in the temple court of a golden pitcher of water from the pool of Siloam. This symbolized the water from the rock in the wilderness. Remember, part of the uh, significance of this uh, feast was to commemorate the wilderness wanderings, uh, the wanderings in, in tents and God's deliverance. Uh, but it symbolized the water from the rock in the wilderness and also the future outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the Messianic age. And so within this context of uh, this uh, symbolic act of the water from the Pool of Siloam being poured out and what it symbolized, in this context and against this backdrop then the cry of Jesus for those who thirst 
to come to him and drink. And this makes sense uh, and was really the equivalent of his promising the Holy Spirit to all who would follow him. And so we have this uh, symbolic act being done with the witness of everybody around in the courtyard of the, of the temple. And so against this, and people have their mind on the water uh, that came from the rock in the wilderness and uh, all that it symbolizes. <clears throat> so Jesus says, are you thirsty? And he puts a spiritual emphasis on it, of course. And uh, it makes sense. And uh, he talks about then the Holy Spirit. Verse 39 that we read indicates that verse 37 and 38 actually refers to believers who will receive the Holy Spirit after Jesus' glorification upon obedient faith. Uh, When was Jesus glorified? Of course, it says here that the Holy Spirit had not yet been given because he had not yet been glorified. Of course, the... uh, glorification of Jesus was the death, burial, and resurrection that was shortly uh, to come. I really think that the best commentary on uh, these scriptures in which Jesus is referring to uh, living waters and that this is the reference to the Holy Spirit that would come, that the best commentary of this probably is chapters 1 and 2 of Acts, the beginning of the church. As you know, Acts begins with uh, Jesus having risen from the dead, assembled with his apostles uh, just before he ascends back into heaven. The apostles received the promise of the Holy Spirit after Jesus' ascension into heaven in Acts chapter 1. And I want to turn there real quick, verses 4 through 8. And it was actually fulfilled in the next chapter, chapter 2, the first four verses. So let's look at Acts 1, 4 through 8. And the Bible says, And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Then coming on over to chapter 2, the first four verses. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues, as a fire, and one sat upon each of them. 
And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Actually, when we are looking at this, uh, two promises of the Holy Spirit are involved here. This is the promise that was made to the apostles, only to the apostles. And it was a baptism of the Holy Spirit. And such that would give them power, miraculous power, which is demonstrated in the first verses of chapter 2. That's one promise. But then the promise of the Holy Spirit to all who were called by the gospel at baptism for remission of sins is found later on in Acts chapter 2, verses 37 through 39. So let's look at that. It's very familiar to us. Beginning with verse 37 of the last part of Peter's sermon to the people after the witness of uh, the miraculous speaking in tongues that the apostles demonstrated in Peter's sermon. Here is the last part of his sermon, the last few sentences. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. So this is the promise of the Holy Spirit to everyone who obeys the gospel and is baptized in the name of Jesus for remission of sins. So again, the promise of the Holy Spirit to the apostles was miraculous. But the promise to all obedient believers at baptism was not miraculous. Uh, to me, uh, the best way to demonstrate this fact is uh, on down in verse 43 of Acts 2. Follow on down if you're still at that opening. This is after 3,000 had obeyed the call to repentance and the baptism, and 3,000 were baptized into Christ, and 3,000, according to what Peter said, received the gift of the Holy Spirit. But did that mean that all these 3,000 could do the miracles that the apostles were able to do? No. Look at verse 43. Then fear came upon every soul. This, these are the uh, 3,000 who had obeyed the gospel. And many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. And there is no indication that any of the 3,000 were able to do miracles. Uh, their fear and reverence and respect came from the fact that they were seeing the apostles do the miracles. And of course we know uh, from study in the past that the miraculous power of the Holy Spirit could also be transferred to Christians by the laying on of the apostles' hands. Uh, 
one of the best scriptures showing this uh, is in Acts chapter 8, verse 18. This is the context in which you recall Philip uh, went to Samaria and began to preach the gospel. Uh, Many obeyed uh, the gospel. And Peter and John soon were called from Jerusalem to come up. And when they did, they laid hands on certain ones of the Christians. And verse 18 is one of those who had obeyed the gospel, the preaching of Philip, Simon. And it says that when Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands, the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money. So the point being that only the apostles had received the miraculous power or measure, sometimes we refer to it, of the Holy Spirit, but that they in turn could transfer this miraculous power uh, to Christians upon whom they laid their hands. And these are the spiritual gifts that we see Paul writing about in his epistles, especially uh, 1 Corinthians 13, where he draws attention to the fact that the greatest gift is love. You might have these other miraculous gifts, but uh, love is the greatest. So logically, as we look at this, these two promises of the Holy Spirit, one being miraculous to a few, that is the apostles, the other being non-miraculous, that is for all who obey the gospel. So logically, if we look at this, by the time that the apostles had died and all those upon whom they had laid their hands had died, miracles ceased. And 1 Corinthians 13 shows us that uh, it had accomplished its purpose. If you go back to Mark chapter 16, the last verses of that chapter, uh, we are told that the purpose of these uh, miracles of the Holy Spirit was to confirm the word before the new covenant of Christ, uh, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit was recorded like you and I have today. The word was confirmed by these miracles. But as the Holy Spirit was working through these days in the recording of the new covenant, the new testament of Christ, when it reached the point where it could be said that the new testament is now in recorded in written form, the miracles had served their purpose and ready to cease. So let's look at very quickly 1 Corinthians 13, verses 8 through 10. Paul is writing, Love never fails, but whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, But when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. It is my conviction that the perfect here is the recorded New Testament of Jesus Christ. Uh, And so once that, uh, that was accomplished, then one by one as the apostles died and those upon whom they had laid their hands died, The word in written form continues until Christ comes again, but miracles uh, have ceased. Now, 
the gift of the Holy Spirit back here in Acts chapter 2 that we looked at. The gift of the Holy Spirit to baptize believers is the Holy Spirit himself dwelling within us. Uh, I believe that this is borne out by many scriptures, one of which is a few chapters over in Acts chapter 5 and verse 32. And there uh, it is said, and we are witnesses to these things. And so also is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. And not only that scripture, there are others, but let's look at one other in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 24. 1 John 3, 24. Now he who keeps his commandments abides in him and he in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. In fact, uh, one more verse, and uh, we'll leave this and get on to the rest of, of chapter 7 of, of John. But if you'll look in uh, Romans chapter 8, uh, we'll look at verses uh, 9 through 11. Romans 8, verses 9 through 11. Actually, when we look at the big picture, we understand that all three of the Godhead dwells within Christians. God the Father, God the Son, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit of God. So read in Romans 8, verses 9 through 11, listen. But you are not in the flesh... But in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. So here you have the Spirit in verse 9, the Holy Spirit. You have the Spirit of God. And you have the Spirit of Christ all dwelling within us. I think the main thing to remember for us, lest there be confusion among ourselves and those uh, outside of the church looking at us, is that uh, we not confuse what the Scriptures say as that all Christians have in the Holy Spirit, that that means that we can speak in tongues and perform miracles the Holy Spirit has its work within us, and it's at work if we are not uh, putting it out. God knows what the Holy Spirit does. It helps us in our praying. It helps in other ways, uh, in a sense, just like Jesus does. It uh, intercedes for us. But by faith, we accept the fact that uh, the promise that was given to us by Jesus Christ himself, that we would have the Holy Spirit, and we rejoice in that. But let's very quickly get down to the rest of the text. I thought that it was needful since Jesus opens it up here. Uh, actually, the 
Old Testament speaks in various places of the Holy Spirit being promised in the Messianic age. Uh, especially Peter, as he is even preaching there in Acts chapter 2, quotes from Joel chapter 2, in which he, through the inspiration of the Spirit, uh, interprets as being uh, the Holy Spirit working through the apostles and what they were seeing. And so I hope that hadn't muddied the water, but let's come on down to uh, verse 40. Uh, therefore, many from the crowd, when they heard this saying, and in context it's talking about uh, the rivers of living water, uh, the Holy Spirit that would come to those who follow Christ when Jesus is glorified. Therefore, when they of the crowd heard this saying, they said, truly, this is the prophet. The prophet. You go back to Deuteronomy, we won't take time to go there. You might want to just jot it down in your notes. But Deuteronomy 18, uh, 15 and 19 uh, refers to the prophet. uh, And this prophet was applied prophetically to Christ. And so it was a, a known understanding of the people from the Old Testament that the prophet referred to the Messiah. And so many, after hearing Jesus on this last great day of the feast, saying, if any thirst, let him come to me, and rivers of living water will proceed, they said, okay, this must be the prophet. This must be the Messiah. Then verses 41 through 43, look at it. Others said... This is the Christ, but some said, Will the Christ come out of Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the seed of David and from the town of Bethlehem where David was? So there was a division among the people because of him. Now some of them wanted to take him, but no one laid hands on him. So again, we see the crowds uh, there in Jerusalem at the feast being divided. Some believe because of the miracles uh, that they saw Jesus do. And then some disbelieve because of what the citizens said about the place uh, where uh, his birth was, his birthplace. They believed that he must have been born in Galilee. The Pharisees, though, uh, were wrong. Here the people, many of the people are saying that uh, the Messiah won't come out of Galilee for no prophet has come out of Galilee. And you, if you come on over a few verses ahead of us right now, uh, in verse 52, the Pharisees now, the Sanhedrin, are saying the same thing, that no prophet has arisen from Galilee. Is this true? No, it was, it was not true. And for any who knew the scriptures, which the Pharisees were supposed to have, would have known that Jonah came out of Galilee. Uh, in fact, Jonah probably is the first of the, uh, the prophets. Uh, this is found in 2 Kings chapter 14, uh, verse 25. 
And uh, well, again, we won't take time to go there, but suffice it to say here that this is a grasping at straws, trying to discredit Jesus in every way that they could. And they said, he, he comes from Galilee. That's, that's where he's been all this time. He grew up there, and obviously he was born there. And no prophet comes from Galilee. Well, that in itself uh, was not true. So verse 44, uh, some of them wanted to take him, but no one laid hands on him. And God's providence is still at work here, uh, preventing any premature uh, arrest of Jesus because his time had not yet come. Let's go on then to the last section in this chapter, verses 45 through 52. Uh, here we see Nicodemus. We have heard of him before. And Nicodemus, a Pharisee, a prominent member of the Sanhedrin, the ruling body of the Jews. Uh, Nicodemus is going to speak, dare to speak, a word uh, of defense on Jesus' behalf. We'll look at first at verses 45 and 46. Then the officers came to the chief priests and Pharisees, who said to them, Why have you not brought him? The officers answered, no man ever spoke like this man. Uh, no man. So this detail, you'll recall that had been ordered by the Pharisees, uh, the Sanhedrin, to go and take Jesus and bring him back in custody. Uh, this detail that had gone, the actual persons who had gone under this order to take Jesus, uh, they come face to face with Jesus. And they were so taken aback by his presence and by his speech that they aborted their assignment. They didn't carry it out. And so they returned to the Pharisees without Jesus. And this infuriates the Pharisees. They can't believe it. How dare you, under orders from us, come back and not have Jesus with you? In verses 47 through 49. Then the Pharisees answered and said unto them, Are you also deceived? Have any of the rulers of the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, he who came to Jesus by night, being one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man before it hears him and knows what he is doing? So, here we see, again, the arrogance of the Pharisees. The Pharisees were so entrenched in the position that nobody should dare to believe in Jesus as long as we the Pharisees don't believe in Him. How dare you? Who do you think you are? Do you see us, your leaders, believing in Him? Well, there you go. 
And that was their position. Uh, they said, we are your leaders. We decide what is true and what is false. Doesn't this just uh, amaze you? This arrogance? We mentioned last week that, well, I expressed my opinion last week that I really believe that they did know that he was the Christ. There was too many undeniable factors involved for anybody with a rational mind uh, to not get. They got it. They were keepers of the law. They knew the law. They knew what it said. You know, in another place, Jesus had said, do what they say to do as they speak from the law, but don't do as they do. Yeah, they knew. And yet the arrogance that they continued to demonstrate, they loved the praise of men more than the glory of God. They knew that Jesus was exhibiting the signs of the Messiah. But yet, he wasn't the Messiah that they wanted. Totally opposite from the kind of Messiah the restorer of Israel to prominence in the world, that kind of Messiah. Jesus was the opposite of that. He was not the Messiah that they wanted. They rejected him, closed their minds to the obvious facts, and stood on their belief that they were right. And everybody else should believe so also just because of them. They even turn on the crowd, the people of Jerusalem, the people of Israel, that they had been entrusted, you know, to protect the law and to deliver and teach the law because they called the crowd accursed. Verse 49, but this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. And that's what they thought of the crowd. And such a statement, I think, exposes uh, in real sharp terms the hateful character of the Pharisees toward the people. By contrast, you know that these are the same people or among the same people that previously and also to follow, Jesus had compassion on. He fed them. He taught them. He healed them. That was Jesus, the Messiah's attitude toward the people. The leaders... They're stupid. They don't know the law. They're cursed. Some of them are believing. We don't believe they should be following us. They're cursed. And they dismiss them. So, there you have it. But then, in verses 50 uh, through 51, Nicodemus, I'd love to have met that man. He is, he is such an interesting person. Here is an insider, member of the Sanhedrin, a Pharisee. Early on, as we remember from our study, came to Jesus by night wanting to learn of Jesus. I think he was sincere. Jesus talked to him about the new birth tried to get Nicodemus to understand the spiritual implications. And then here's Nicodemus again. 
Nicodemus, he who came to Jesus by night, being one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man before he hears him and knows what he is doing? So obviously not all of the Sanhedrin were evil men. As a body, they were. The majority were evil men, but not all. Nicodemus was one of them, and uh, perhaps there, as I said, were others. But two and a half years uh, earlier, he had come to Jesus, very early in Jesus' ministry, and uh, he wanted to hear Jesus. Uh, there may be more in the Sanhedrin like Nicodemus. Nicodemus had enough uh, strength within him, first of all, to have gone, even though it may have been by secret and unknown to his fellow Sanhedrians, uh, to Jesus, but nevertheless, he risked that and went to Jesus out of sincerity. And at least here again, he is voicing a concern. This is getting serious. And so Nicodemus speaks up. And uh, he gives a defense of Jesus. But really, uh, Nicodemus and others like him perhaps were helpless regarding the policies of the body as a whole. Uh, the men who controlled that body had already, 18 months earlier, decided to kill Jesus. And that was still in force. And it was proceeding according to plan. But it's a little interesting here that uh, after Nicodemus makes this statement, in verse 51, verse 52, they answered him and said to him, Are you also from Galilee? Search and look, for no prophet has arisen out of Galilee. And we've already mentioned that. That's wrong. Prophet had come out of Galilee. So they were wrong in that. But they come back at Nicodemus. They mock him. And try to, again, discredit him. You know that no prophet comes. He comes from Galilee. So he, he can't be the Messiah. You're wrong, Nicodemus. And I don't know. It doesn't say here that Nicodemus then had a rejoinder. We don't see a dialogue developing here. We have his statement. And we have the response from the Sanhedrin. And that's it. We don't hear uh, anymore of Nicodemus until when? When's the next time we're going to hear of Nicodemus? Pardon? Right. Over in chapter 18 of John, we'll get there eventually, a couple of three years from now, but uh, it's the same Nicodemus that uh, after the Lord has been crucified and taken down, he, along with Joseph of Arimathea, 
uh, dares take the body and prepare it for burial. And you know what? I would like to think that that 3,000 who were baptized on the day of Pentecost, Nicodemus was one of them. I just almost know that he was. He was a believer. He stood up for Jesus. He may have been put down as far as uh, having any effect on the others, but he, he was true. I believe that he obeyed the gospel and was baptized into Christ. We come on down then to the last verse, verse 52. They answered and said to him, Are you also from Galilee? Search and look, for no prophet has arisen out of Galilee. Of course, all through this, we have seen that the Pharisees were uh, Jesus' most fiercest enemy because it was the teachings and the uh, hypocrisies of the Pharisees that Jesus denounced. And Jesus continually showed the dishonesty, the arrogance, uh, the hypocrisy, and the teachings of Jesus uh, of the Pharisees. And they hated him. They hated him to the core. And they were going to kill him. And they would eventually succeed not too many days hence. So they dismissed the guards and the crowds as being ignorant and uninformed. And so thus we see here in chapter 7, the beginning of the end as far as Jesus' physical life and ministry on the earth. A lot has happened in these 52 verses of, of John. And as I said, it sort of opens up the way for all of the narrative that follows uh, throughout the rest of the book of, of John. So it's going to be interesting to see what happens in the fading uh, 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 six months before Jesus is glorified at the Passover in April and is crucified and is buried and then gloriously resurrected. I can't believe that I did it. I finished by the buzzer. Uh, having to rush a little bit to, to get through all of this, I'm not the only teacher, and you can't spend forever, but I hope that what we have looked at has been beneficial and uh, has been helpful. Thank you.